Well, good morning, Lakewood. If you're visiting this morning, we want to welcome you. We're so glad you came to worship with us this morning. And we're going to continue in our worship as we take up again with uh, Genesis 3. We feel the highest form of worship is the proclamation and study of God's Word. So we just got two, two verses this morning. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word. This is God's holy and inspired Word. This is Genesis 3, verse 20 and 21. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And he clothed them. Heavenly Father, we pray you are blessed by the reading of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So over the last few weeks in the book of Genesis, in this chapter, chapter 3, which is really arguably the most foundational chapter in the Bible, we have seen the greatest tragedy of mankind followed by the greatest hope of mankind. The greatest tragedy of mankind, of course, is the fall of mankind in the fall of of Adam, the sin of Adam, the first man. And then the vast, devastating reality of the fall is met immediately with a glorious promise that paved the way for all other promises. The catastrophic effects of the fall cannot be overstated. Mankind had its beginning in perfect paradise in perfect communion with God. But then the fall, with the fall, the entirety of the created universe fell when Adam fell. And suddenly, for the first time, sin and death entered in, bringing decay, failure, disappointment, weakness, sadness, sorrow, pain, failure, discomfort, remorse, regret, conflict, hate, envy, jealousy, vengeance, fear, Bitterness, selfishness, confusion, dishonesty, deception, manipulation, and on and on. The paradise that Yahweh created, we lost in the fall of Adam. The Puritan Thomas Brooks mentioned five things that we lost in the fall. He said we lost our holy image and became vile. We lost our sonship and became slaves. We lost our friendship and became enemies. We lost our communion and became strangers. We lost our glory and we became miserable. Yet while the the effects of the fall are overwhelming, a promise immediately is revealed in Scripture of a coming seed, a coming Redeemer who would make all things new. Verse 15 of chapter 3 is so pivotal. When Yahweh spoke to the serpent, and he said, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Right here following the tragic fall of man is the seedbed of the gospel. Sometimes referred to as the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. Mercy in the midst of judgment, victory emerging from defeat, The greatest hope of mankind rising to save out of the ashes of fallen mankind. A a redeemer who would deal a crushing blow to the head of the serpent and thus conquer sin and death. Adam heard this offer loud and clear. He believed in this promise and he embraced it. Adam had faith. 
that Yahweh would provide salvation through a coming seed. From the perspective of redemptive history, the promise of this coming seed is the first revelation of redemption through a redeemer that Yahweh would provide. So two strong themes are presented here in verses 20 and 21 that will run throughout all of redemptive history, all the way to the cross and beyond. One of them is our hope of redemption would rest on faith alone, as we're going to see here in verse 20 in the faith of Adam. The second would be our hope of redemption would rest in a sacrifice who Yahweh would provide, as we're going to see in verse 21, through the shed blood of a substitute. Faith in a coming Redeemer goes to the heart of defining every believer who's ever been born again. That we have put our faith, all our hope, in a God who provides a substitute by providing salvation through a sacrifice who would take the punishment we deserve, which is prefigured in the seed of the woman being bruised on the heel. Yet despite that, would gain victory over sin and death prefigured in the fatal bruising of the head of the serpent. So we can be made spiritually alive from the dead and thus reverse the curse. That is the hope of saving grace. That is the hope of amazing grace. And Adam believed every bit of it. And astonishingly, in these verses, we see through Adam in the fall of man being quickly replaced by the faith of man. So point one in your outline, Adam affirms God's promise of life. Verse 20, now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So how exactly does Adam affirm God's promise of life by calling his wife Eve? Well, let's look back at the previous verse, 19. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Amazingly, Adam named his wife Eve, Hepha in the Hebrew, meaning mother of all the living. In the face of just hearing a divine death sentence pronounced on him. But why the death sentence? We'll look back at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The reason Yahweh commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. Adam broke the commandment when he ate. And now he hears that he, as well as all of mankind, is under a death sentence. And yet, Adam turns around and calls his wife life. That's amazing faith. Eve would be the fountainhead of life. From her would come all the living. Do you see Adam's faith here? He just heard for the first time he will die, and he immediately calls his wife life. That is hope. That is faith. Adam believed, he confessed, and he embraced the promise of verse 15, the first gospel. He believed God's promise was more powerful than the sentence of death. Bottom line, he could have named his wife anything, but he names her life, seed of the living. Why? Because he believed the gospel. And remember, this is the second name given to his wife. The first name he gave her was woman, given to the woman, was woman before the fall because she was taken out of man when Adam joyfully embraced Eve, for they became one flesh. 
But then after the fall, sin came in to the marriage, trying to lead their marriage to destruction. Enmity developed. They're no longer best friends. Adam blames his wife before God. You remember, he said, the woman you gave me. Suddenly there was daylight between them. But now through the promise, Adam regained intimacy with his wife. He sees life fulfilled in her through the veil of the promise. This is childlike faith from Adam in calling his wife Eve. It's reminiscent of Abraham when he called Isaac, meaning promise, naming his son Isaac. Adam, like Abraham, did not waver in the rock-solid promise from God. And notice that no sign or wonder was needed, only trusting completely in the word of God without a moment's hesitation. Prior to this, he believed Satan. Yes, he sinned against God. Yes, he was cursed. Yes, the sentence of death was on him. Yet he believed, he believed the word of God, that the woman would produce that promised seed and bring life. Adam believed through the same work of grace, through the Holy Spirit, that continues to be poured out on poor sinners today, whose sins are exceedingly sinful. Well, just ask yourself, by disobeying God, did Adam sin? Was it the grandest sin of all creation? Absolutely. And how many sins did Adam commit? Just one. What does that tell us? That tells us God is righteous and that every sin committed will be judged. Yet at the same time, Adam's focus in naming his wife Eve, the mother of all the living, tells us that he believed God's grace upon him and he looked forward to new life. He looked forward to redemption. Adam believed that God's grace overwhelmed his sin, for grace is greater than sin. It is only by God's grace that we can have the faith of Adam in the same promise of God that he will restore all that is broken by the fall by sending his son to redeem those he has called to eternal life. What about Eve's faith? Is there evidence that she believed the promise as well? Eve too had sinned. And not only did she sin first, but she proved to be a pretty bad helpmate for Adam. Yes, she heard the promise that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Then she hears it from the lips of her own husband. Right here in verse 20, that she will be the mother of the living. Did she believe it? Did she have faith? Yes. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man knew his wife Eve. and She conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. A promise of life coming through Eve, the mother of all the living, finds fulfillment in the birth of Cain with the blessing of the first new life since the fall. Eve names him Cain, which means acquired. Now we understand her declaration. I have gotten a man. I have acquired a man by the help of Yahweh. Adam had faith. Eve had faith in God's promise, even in the shadow of death, even the valley of despair. Can we do no less to have faith in Yahweh that he is righteous, that Yahweh is just, that he keeps his promises? Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Christ died calling you to trust him by depending upon his promise the way Adam trusted and depended 
upon his promise. People will ask, will Adam and Eve be in heaven? Absolutely. Because implied here, with Adam and Eve affirming God's promise of life, this verifies the faith of Adam and Eve. Faith they would cling to for over 900 years. Now, point two in your outline, where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, is Yahweh confirms an atonement for new life. And verse 21 reads, Then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed him. There is so much to unpack here in this one verse. But let's just look at how Adam and Eve first got here. Remember chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So pre-fall, naked and unashamed. Then tragically, they disobeyed God's clear command and they ate. Chapter 3, and the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh called to the man and said, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? You know, there is a real bearing of the reproach of sin, literally and figuratively in nakedness, which explains the desire of Adam and Eve due to their shame and guilt and their vulnerability of their nakedness, causing them to cover themselves with fig leaves. Verse 20 records, Yahweh made coats of skin and clothed them himself. Here we meet the reality of death for the first time. Yahweh draws first blood with a bloody sacrifice. So here God honors Adam and Eve's faith by confirming the promise of a way of salvation through a substitutionary shedding of blood. Introducing the precious doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement is the heart of the gospel. If you don't understand this doctrine, you don't understand why Christ died. But let's define terms first. The penal of penal substitutionary atonement refers to the penalty that is required. You may ask, why is a penalty required? Because God is holy and God is just. And every sin ever committed in the history of the world by every sinner must be paid for. In other words, there's a penalty outstanding. There's a debit for every sin committed. And that sin penalty is either paid for by the sinner in judgment for eternity or by a substitute who pays that sin for you. To do what? To atone for that sin and to pay the penalty in full. That is atonement. So altogether, penal substitutionary atonement simply means the penalty a substitute pays in full to atone for sin. So why is that so important to understand? Because it answers the most fundamental and legitimate question that a sinner will ask. And that is, how can God, who must rightly judge every sin of every sinner in the world, with perfect righteousness and perfect justice, not overlooking a single sin, as he didn't overlook Adam's sin, 
how then is it possible for me, a sinner, to be reconciled to such a holy God? The answer is prefigured here in verse 21 with the sacrifice and covering of animal skins for Adam and Eve through penal substitutionary atonement. The shedding of blood of the animals to cover the shame and guilt consuming Adam and Eve for their sin against Yahweh. Adam and Eve needed such a covering for sin to cover their physical, psychological, and emotional shame. And this was shame that was so real that they desperately attempt to hastily make their own coverings for their sin. But Yahweh takes away their flimsy fig leaves and he fits them with coats of animals, most likely sheep that gave their lives. So they would be covered through the first sacrifices of creation. Deaths caused by the Creator Himself, who is willing to sacrifice His own creation to foreshadow the atoning of sins for the salvation of mankind, thus declaring that sin is so serious that no amount of fig leaves will cover sin. Only blood and death is sufficient. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Yahweh warned them the only death that only death is sufficient to pay the price when sin is committed. He said, if you eat eat of the tree, you will surely die. They knew that. But what they're being introduced to here with the sacrificial death of these animals is the need for a substitute. Jesus Christ prophesied his own substitution in the Gospel of John when he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So as with the sacrifice of Christ, the substitute for atonement must be provided for by Yahweh. Just as Yahweh provided the ram caught in the thicket in the sacrifice of Isaac, not at, so Isaac would not be sacrificed at the hands of Abraham. Yahweh alone, Jehovah Jireh, meaning God provides. He must provide the sacrifice because we can't stand in our own fig leaves. We can't stand in our own righteousness. Isaiah 61 records, I will rejoice greatly in Yahweh. My soul will rejoice in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. Adam and Eve being clothed by God in animal skins foreshadows our being clothed in God by God in the imputed righteousness of Christ. This explains our covering in the great exchange. On one side, we're covered with the righteousness of Christ. On the other side, Christ is clothed in our unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians records, He made him to be sin who knew no sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of of God in him. The only way we become the righteousness of God in him is we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So what began with Adam and Eve in the garden, clothed in animal skins, in order to stand before the Lord, it will find its culmination in the church in heaven. Clothed in fine linen to stand before the Lord at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation records, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. 
the only acceptable covering from Adam and Eve for Adam and Eve and even for believers today is the covering provided for by Yahweh. All else are filthy rags, fig leaves of our own making, our own so-called good works. They are inadequate. Only the covering provided by God is adequate. Matthew 22 records just how inadequate we are when we are not clothed in Christ's righteousness. It reads, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All religions outside of biblical Christianity rely on their own fig leaves to earn their way to their false deity. But sadly, so are evangelical churches today filled with people putting their faith in their own works, whether it be church attendance or tithing or denominations or volunteering or fasting or even serving. Are you relying on anything other than Christ? If you are, realize they are all but fig leaves, false coverings before God, who requires what? He requires faith in the penal substitutionary atonement of his son for your sins, for you to be adequately covered before him. That was the purpose of drawing first blood in the garden, clothing Adam and Eve. And every day Adam and Eve would get dressed, it would be a painful reminder of what was lost, the perfection of the garden, where there was no shame, there was no guilt, there was no clothes, there was no covering needed. Now with clothing, they would remember not only paradise lost, but the death that was necessary to cover them. This being the high price necessary for the sins they committed, and surely for them who had never witnessed death, this left an impression. The first blood to hit the soil of the earth the life of the animal draining out of them, their eyes closing, the suddenly lifeless body. The animals had been their friends. Adam named each one of them. But now they gave their very lives to cover them. The wages of their sin and disobeying God was death. Just as the wages of our sin is death. And it's either that spiritual death will fall upon us for eternity or to fall upon a penal substitute that will atone for our sins. So we've looked at the first blood shed with the animal sacrifice to cover Adam and Eve, which inaugurated and foreshadowed a whole sacrificial system that spilled untold barrels of blood over the centuries, pointing ahead to one sacrifice for all time. The only perfect and sufficient sacrifice, the one lamb chosen by God to pay for the sins of his people and wrap them in the righteousness of Christ. So if first blood in the garden speaks of the first substitutionary atonement, then our next point, dried blood, speaks of the futility of a centuries-long system of atonement, an onerous system that would lay heavy on the nation of Israel as a reminder of sins each year. Leviticus 4 records, Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before Yahweh, 
and the bull shall be slaughtered before Yahweh. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull to the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before Yahweh in front of the veil. This verse describes the duties of the high priest, which was to enter the Holy and Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Yom is the word for day. Kippur comes from the word kafar, meaning to make atonement. So after the slaughter of the sacrifice, the high priest would take that bowl containing that hot blood of the sacrifice behind the veil into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And after dipping his finger in that hot blood of this freshly spilt sacrifice, he would sprinkle the blood seven times before Yahweh on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, which was a gold lid situated between the broken law and the Shekinah glory of his presence, thus making intercession before Yahweh for the sins for which the sacrifice was made. The gold lid was called the mercy seat because it was there that Yahweh was satisfied. It was there where Yahweh was appeased by the sacrifice in the intercession of the high priest. Here we see the singular action of the high priest, the intercession of the high priest for those whose sins were atoned through the shed blood of the sacrifice. One action for one people, not for the world, not for the Egyptians, not for the Babylonians, not for the Assyrians, not even for the whole of the nation of Israel, but only those of the nation of Israel that were present on Yom Kippur to witness a sacrifice and then wait for the emergence of the high priest from the Holy of Holies, confirming that those who were present to witness the work of the high priest on their behalf had their sins atoned for, but just for that year, just for that year. They'd have to come again next year and the next year and the next year. As long as they lived to have their sins atoned for. The problem was the sacrifice and intercession not only did not atone for their sins for the year, but even more problematic that animal blood of the sacrifice never did atone for their sins ever because it was never meant to. It never appeased Yahweh. Because it was never meant to. The whole sacrificial system never appeased Yahweh because it was never meant to. 10,000 Yom Kippurs never appeased Yahweh because it was never meant to. None of those sacrifices ever paid for one single solitary sin because they were never meant to. The sacrifices, rather, were performed over and over and over again as a reminder of sins. It's called an anomnesis in the Greek. Listen to Hebrews 10. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This reminder of sin was to symbolize and represent a future sacrifice that would appease Yahweh. Just as a sacrifice by Yahweh for Adam and Eve in the garden was a reminder of sins that represented a future sacrifice that would atone for sins perfectly, completely to the uttermost by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Again, Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily 
ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins, for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, can you imagine? The high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, offering this time after time the same sacrifices. Year after year after year, he had to be confronted by the eerie reminder of the dried blood of the previous year's sacrifice. Knowing instinctively that this atonement was not effectual. It wasn't efficacious for forgiving sins. Therefore, there was a clear futility to his work of intercession. And that is why there's no seed in the Holy of Holies. Because the work of the high priest is never effective in forgiving sins. Therefore, the work of the high priest is what? It is never finished. Thus, the dry blood that accumulated each year on Yom Kippur was illustrative of its failure to forgive sins. So while Adam and Eve were part of the first blood that was shed, those of the nation of Israel were part of the perpetual blood that was shed, that lasted for centuries. Yet in both cases, not a single sin was atoned for. For it is only the one sacrifice for all time that takes away sins of both Jews and Gentiles. There are, however, some important insights we can learn from the sacrificial system under the Levitical priesthood given by God. First off, the singular act of the high priest to atone for sins was not for the world. Substitutionary atonement in Scripture is never for the world, but rather for the people of God. And the people of God were those participating in Yom Kippur in the Old Testament. Consider the Messianic Isaiah 53, speaking of Christ, the suffering servant, dying not for the world, but dying for the many. It reads, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. In the New Testament, God's people expanded from those of the elect nation of Israel to the elect Jews and Gentiles scattered throughout the world. This is evidenced in John 11, when we hear from none other than the high priest of Jesus' day prophesying who Christ would soon die for. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is far better that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, but not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The second thing we can learn from the sacrificial priesthood under sacrificial system under the Levitical priesthood was that the blood of the high priest, the work of the high priest, in taking the hot blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling that blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for those who the sacrifice was made was a singular act, not two separate actions. Why is that such a big deal? The dominant view in Christianity today separates the atoning work of Christ 
as our high priest from the intercessory work of Christ as our high priest. They say his atoning work offers himself as a sacrifice for the world. But in his intercessory work, he only intercedes for those who would be saved. This view separates the singular act of the high priest with a priest in his atoning work, atoning for the sins of the world. In his intercessory work, he's only interceding, but not for the world. But the works of the high priest cannot be separated. For the blood in that one bowl was shed for the sins of those who the sacrifice was made. The same bowl, that same blood, is then taken by the high priest behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled, thus interceding for those same sins of those same people before Yahweh. There are not two bulls, one for the world for the sacrifice, then another bull for those who intercession is made. And there are not two acts, one for the world for the sacrifice, and then another separate act for those for who the intercession is made. It is the same bull, the same blood, for the same sins of the same people. It is the singular act of the high priest to atone and intercede for the sins of one people of God. So the atonement in the intercession has to be connected. Why? This is so key. Because Christ's atonement is the grounds for Christ's intercession. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is the grounds for his intercession before the Father. The people for which the finished work of Calvary was accomplished Christ is saying to the Father, here they are. Those you gave me, I paid the penalty. I died for them. I atoned for them. I made reconciliation for them. I made propitiation for them. And now I intercede for them. And they will be raised on the last day. So it is not only all one work for one people, but it is all about his perfect finished work. What does Jesus say in John 10? He said, now this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. From the, Father, give, from the giving of the Father to the Son, all the way to the resurrection, Jesus Christ, our sovereign God, is in control of who these elect are. And he will lose none of them that the Father has given them. But how? By saving them, all of them. Because Jesus Christ, our high priest, not only made the sacrifice for them and makes intercession for them, but Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is the sacrifice for them. Ephesians 5, in walk in love, just as Christ also also loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Paul clearly here is connecting the cross to those Old Testament sacrifices. Can you imagine the sacrifice of Christ being universal? Meaning he died for the sins of the world, yet his intercession for all the world fails? And it would have to fail, right? Because we know that not all the world is saved. So if Christ wants to save them since he died for their sins, he paid for their sins, he intercedes for them, yet he fails? He fails to save to the uttermost? Is that possible? Meganoito, no way. Do you see the major problems we run into when we try to make the work of Christ as our high priest 
in the atonement universal to everyone, but then make the work of Christ in the intercession specific to another category of people. Why would Christ die for those he does not intercede for? Which brings up a question, who does Christ intercede for? John 17. Now they've come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those who have given me for they are yours. Romans 8, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Right here in one verse. Look at it. We see both Christ's atoning death and his intercession for those he died for. And it is for us. And you say, well, who is the us? That Christ died and now is interceding for at the right hand of the Father. Well, verse 33 tells us, it is not for the world. It is for who? It's for the elect. So obviously, if Christ is only interceding for God's elect, then for who was the sacrifice made? For the same people. Why? Because you cannot separate the work of the high priest. The same people he died for are the same people he makes intercession for. And those he makes intercession for are saved to the uttermost completely. He did not just make salvation a possibility. He didn't even just make salvation a probability. He did more than that. Read Hebrews 1, speaking of Christ, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, who having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then later in Hebrews 9, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Accomplished cleansing, obtained eternal redemption. The one high priest, Jesus Christ, who is able to save forever, holds his priesthood permanently. And he has accomplished redemption for those he came to save. Matthew 1, 21. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So this leads us to royal blood. Royal blood. We've considered the first blood shed by Adam and Eve in the garden. And we looked at the dried blood of the sacrificial system of the Levitical priesthood. Now we look at the royal blood. The only blood that saves. While the first blood for Adam and Eve and the dried blood of the sacrificial system could only accomplish a reminder, an anomnesis of sins, only the royal blood shed by Jesus Christ gives us a reminder of a sin bearer. Why? Because animal sacrifices can only be a reminder of sins. But only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ stands as a reminder of a sin bearer. Is it any wonder that of the two ordinances given to the church, that one would be this very reminder? 
the Lord's Supper to remember our precious sin bearer? The nation of Israel, through thousands of sacrifices, centered their worship around a remembrance of sins. The church, on the other hand, through one sacrifice for all time, centers our worship around a remembrance, not of sins, but of a sin bearer, Jesus Christ. So how precious is the royal blood shed by our high priest, our intercessor, in our coming king? What could his blood do that the blood of animals could not do? Well, Hebrews 9 tells us, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way which he inaugurated to us, for us through the veil that is his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Only the blood of Christ actually atones, cleanses us from sin, and only the blood of Christ gives us entry into the holy places where our great great high priest intercedes for us on our behalf. And this is what the first blood shed for Adam and Eve pointed to. And this is what every sacrifice made in the Levitical priesthood, emblematic in the dry blood, it's what it pointed to as well. New life from the dead in our justification through the precious blood of Christ and new life from the dead in our sanctification through Christ's intercession. It all ties together. So as we think back of the shed blood of the animals for Adam and Eve, we see in it Yahweh confirming a future atonement for our new life. And surely this promised new life gave Adam and Eve strong encouragement. Adam was encouraged to name his wife Life in the face of death. And Adam and Eve were encouraged that their sin would be atoned for. Hebrews 6. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and confirmed and the one with, which enters within the veil. Likewise, one of the greatest signs of Christian maturity is that we're not tossed to and fro because we have this same hope. We have this same anchor of the soul. And so certain, so sure, and so unchanging is the hope we have because we have entered with Christ behind the veil. You know what that means? It means the only way we get this elevated position in Christ is because Christ's work on our behalf has already been accepted by Yahweh, by the Father. This gives us real hope. That gives us the anchor of the soul. Believer, do you have that anchor of the soul this morning? Knowing that your soul is secure behind the veil with Christ. This eternal asset is your greatest asset. Hope in earthly assets are fleeting. But we know when we die, our hope in this eternal asset of being with Christ will be manifest. If you die in an unbeliever, you know what happens. Your friends and family take full claim of your possessions. The worms and grubs will take full claim of your body. And Satan will take full claim of your soul. 
For you focused your whole life on your possessions and your body, which will pass away, while neglecting your only eternal asset, which is the only asset prized by the enemy, by the way. Satan doesn't want your things. He does not want your body, but he covets your soul. For he knows he has you walking on that wide road to destruction. Your soul firmly in his clutches while you are firmly in the clutches of your sin. Because your sin's so comfortable. It's so familiar. It's all you've ever known. If that is what your life has become, there's nothing more tragic than a soul hardened to the, and numb to the effects of sin, unresponsive, dead in its trespasses, unable and unwilling to wake up to the eternal destruction that is ahead. Summoning the sinner who's asleep in their sin just a little further, just a little further. Keep coming until your heel passes that threshold right at death's door. And that door slams behind you never to be opened again. That is why we plead with those who do not know Christ week after week because your soul is weighed in the balance. So where do you fall this morning? Is your life marked by repentance and faith? Or is your life void of repentance and faith? And thus void of the new birth, void of the new life, and void of new creation. But this morning, maybe you realize you're stuck in the same rut. You've been unable to escape your entire life. Well, be thankful you're in a rut, not a grave, because a rut has two exits. For although sin will keep you down and kick you into the ditch and kick you into the rut. It is grace that will raise you up and set you on high and raise you to new life. How? By God's grace calling you to repentance and faith. So if God is calling you to turn from your sin, turn to God in all humility, putting your very life in his hands, your treasure in the field that you would give everything for to obtain Understand, that is the way to eternal life. That is the way to the Father. And He will lift you up as His own. And you will be secure for all eternity with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word here in these two verses. Lord, we pray that You would give us strong encouragement.